Without further ado, we are going to dive right in. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. We're going to roll right into our first victim impact statement. And this comes from Jane Carson Sandler. So you guys are familiar with Jane. She was uh, one of the early East Area Rapist victims. She was attacked on October 5th, 1976 in her home with her small child. Have a listen. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. My name is um, Jane Carson Sandler. And D'Angelo, I want you to look at me. I want you to look at me, D'Angelo, and I want you to remember what I have to say. First, I want to say, glory be to my Lord Jesus Christ for sustaining me with his peace, his love, his strength, and power over the last 44 years. Yes, D'Angelo, it's been 44 years on October 5th. 1976, when you broke into my home in the early hours, just after my husband had left for work, and you shoved your knife into my neck, you bound my wrist and ankles, you blindfolded me, and then gagged me with a cloth. Remember that? But you also did the same to my precious three-year-old son. How dare you? Then you repeatedly threatened to kill us. The fear escalated when you started tearing sheets and cloths, and I had no idea what you were planning to do with all that cloth. Strangle us, maybe? Yes, I was frozen in fear beyond description. My attention was not on the rape, but fully on where did you put my son? when you removed him from the bed. Where did you put him? And what were you gonna to do to him? I even wrote a book, Frozen in Fear, detailing my journey after my assault. I tried to escape my fear with alcohol, but medicating myself did not work. However, that experience brought me to finding the Lord, so it was worth it. He performed a miracle and relieved me of my addiction. I may have been one of your victims, D'Angelo, but you know what? Now I'm a survivor thriver, and I've had a great life. I put my fears aside. I finished my nursing degree at Cal State the same year of your attack. And then I spent 30 years in the Air Force, achieving the rank of Colonel. Yes, evil one, I turned my pain into power and my mess into a message by facilitating groups of women that had been sexually assaulted and volunteering at our rape crisis center. All very worthwhile activities. Who knows though what I might have accomplished had my life not had been interrupted by your vicious attack. I have a loving husband of 26 years and two amazing, successful sons. 
So you didn't destroy my life. In fact, your cowardly, cruel, and sick behavior enabled me to meet so many wonderful folks, other victims, their families, investigators, detectives, TV personalities, etc. And my life has been so, so enriched by their friendship, and my life is so much more meaningful now because of it. If it wasn't for the trauma I endured, I wouldn't be the person I am today. And I am proud of what I have accomplished. I am blessed beyond words. I see your eyes are closing. Yes, my wounds have been healed, but my scars remain. Hearing a helicopter overhead, seeing a ski mask, and hearing someone yell or say, shut up, will forever cause me anxiety. My comfort at those times is remembering that you are finally going to prison and will remain there until you die. Oh, and by the way, D'Angelo, do you remember the roast you had cooking in the oven the day you were arrested? Well, too bad you didn't get to enjoy it because many of your victims will be enjoying a delicious roast every 24 April in remembrance of your capture unless there is a divine intervention. And by the way, I want you to know that I was just sick to my stomach listening to the graphic details of your assaults during the hearing. Your language, your behavior were just deplorable. Have you no mercy? Have you no remorse? Not only does my heart go out to all of the women you raped and the dear souls you so viciously murdered, but also to your former wife, your children, your grandchildren. They don't deserve to live a life full of shame due to your despicable actions. D'Angelo, they too are your victims. Think about it, D'Angelo. They too are your victims. Well, you know, quarter of me being a Christian, I want to say to you, may God have mercy on your soul. But then there's another three quarters of me that just want to tell you, buddy, to rot in hell. Well, I want to thank all of my supporters that are here today. Um, I want to thank everyone that's worked so hard on getting us all here. And I, I'm just blessed to have supporters at home, supporters here. And I also um, want to especially thank a friend that's accompanying me today. And uh, that friend is Bonnie. Take your mask off. If Bonnie were able to speak, Joe, she would want you to know that as just a teenager 50 years ago, she broke her engagement to you when she realized that you would become manipulative and abusive. When you thought you could kidnap her and force her to marry you, even a gun pointed at her face could not make her choose you. When she saw who you really were, she was done with you. I can see that I hate you, Bonnie, was a result of your frustration because you lost control over her, but she bears none none of that responsibility for your violent choices. And we consider her one of us, the sister survivors of your malicious attacks. 
When you are wheeled away to begin your sentence, you re you'll return in Bonnie's life to that forgotten and insignificant place, gone from her life forever. Amen. That was an extremely powerful statement from, from Jane there. And just listening to the anger in her voice and how, how these victims keep it together while facing this man in court is just beyond me. Uh, what did you think of that? Yeah, I honestly couldn't imagine being in their shoes having to... I mean, I'm glad every victim you know, had their day in court, so to say, and and was able to face him finally after all this time, what, four decades? That's just insane. But there was a lot of anger in Jane's voice, but there was also a lot of power, a lot of conviction there. She wanted to let him know that in the end, he did not defeat her. And it was a very powerful statement. It was. It was extremely powerful. And, you know, you're listening to her talk about it. And the whole time she's just worried about, you know, her son who was with her during the attack. And she's just focused on him. And, you know, she's talking about some of the other victims and listening, you know, through that day in court to some of their other, a lot of the court proceedings leading up to this, especially the ones where, you know, he admitted guilt, but like the things that he was saying and doing to other people. And, you know, she, I think, realizes she's lucky to be alive after her encounter with him based on what happens at the end of his series. And it's just interesting to, you know, hear how she's holding it together there. Like you can hear in her voice that she just really, like she wants to just scream that she's holding back and just calm and trying to deliver this message. And, you know, I, I could not imagine what it would be like to face this person. And like, when you think about the Golden State Killer and you think about like how long these attacks went on for and then how long they went unsolved for and how they increase in, you know, severity all the way to murder, what that does to your mind. And you got to remember, for those of you who forget, when he started out as Visalia Ransacker, then he escalated to a rapist, then he escalated to a murderer, those three things were never all tied together for a very long time. So you'd have, especially in the cases of the murder, those families would be thinking they were dealing with one single murderer that had an axe to grind against that particular couple, and they were not tied together to this rapist. So once that happened, it almost makes it even worse in my mind. I mean, I can't speak for the families themselves, but if you're worried about, like, in the events that happened at the end, you know, some loved ones get murdered, and you have no idea who did it or why, what do you think about like finding out it's, you know, a serial murderer versus just some guy or girl or something that, you know, was pissed off at this couple for some reason and murdered them? It's crazy to think about after the fact for sure, because like you said, each of these crime sprees, so to speak, were isolated. You know, as a Vasily ransacker, he's just breaking into homes, messing stuff up, stealing things. He escalates to the East Area Rapist and he he had a pattern with every one of his victims, but then escalating to murder. I mean, like you said, for a very long time, none of these none of these three profiles of of crimes were tied together. But just to think back on it, I, I can't imagine as a victim, for, you know, from any of the incidents, especially from the rapes and especially from the murders. Those are the most egregious, you know, offenses that he committed. And not to be caught for four decades, I, I can't imagine the stress or the, you know, the post-traumatic stress that those victims went through for for over 40 years, knowing that 
this person is potentially still out there. And what if he targets me again? Exactly. And what about like when they start connecting the dots again through DNA? And so then you have the set of rape victims and then you have the set of murder victims and their families. And all of a sudden it's like, this was never solved. And then it's coming back again and it's coming back in a new way. Like, Oh, now it's like a serial criminal. Like, Whoa, this guy's like, and and you find out how prolific it is in the sense of how the volume. Right. And so like, how scared would you then be? I'd be so nervous at that point. Like it would drum up all those feelings. And then you're like, now you're probably having all that anxiety again of like, well, is he going to come back or like, what's going on? Like he's never been captured. And you find out like, well, he committed like 50 rapes and he murdered a bunch of people. What's a psychopath capable of? Exactly. And and you, you mentioned an interesting point there. What kind of stress does that bring back once you learn all of these new details? But especially from Jane's uh, statement, she said there's still little things that even to this day, you know, raise her anxiety level. You know, that, that, that stress is still there. She hears a helicopter overhead. I'm sure there was, once she had reported her crime, you know, there's detectives there. There's, there's little things. A ski, she sees somebody wearing a ski mask or she hears somebody yelling, shut up. I mean, he did that to a lot of his victims, you know, like, shut up, be quiet. It's terrible to think that the the people have to live with that stress their entire life. And some of those aspects never go away. But I'm sure it's definitely heightened once they learn. And I'm sure they're not to be thankful that they were one of the murder victims because it just got worse and worse. And just to think that they could have been one of those people that he killed as well has to be, I mean, just still terrifying in their mind. Absolutely. All right. And before we move on to the next one. What did you think about that surprise twist there of Jane bringing Bonnie to stand next to her and stare at D'Angelo as she's giving that statement? I mean, that's that's the ultimate dig. She she had a couple of digs there. She threw out the roast in the oven that they'll enjoy every year as a celebration of his capture. But then to bring Bonnie in, and I, I think she was trying to elicit a reaction from him, honestly, in the court. But some of those attacks, Bonnie was, you know, a pivotal part of that attack. He's, he, you know, he would yell out, I hate you, Bonnie. I think sometimes he was pacing around the kitchen and talking to himself. And, you know, some of these victims recall him saying stuff about Bonnie. So then he's, she's really playing on his emotions as well. And rightfully so, because he's done that to so many people. Right. And just a refresher for those of you who may have forgotten, Bonnie was once, uh, engaged to Joe. And then, you know, she found out he was a complete lunatic and was like, nah, if that, I'm out of here. And, uh, you know, so, and he had a thing for her big time and it's been reported. I saw somewhere. And so I apologize. I don't have my facts in front of me here, but I believe it might've been Joe's brother-in-law, uh, had mentioned something like he was never over Bonnie. And even though he married his, you know, his wife at the time, you know, he, he would mention Bonnie or it like, it was a thing for him. Like she was a big trigger to him. I kind of wish it would have elicited, you know, triggered a reaction from D'Angelo in the court. I mean, at one point she, she calls him out saying that, you know, I see your eyes are closing and that that's what leads me to believe she was trying to elicit a reaction from him with, with bringing Bonnie there and bringing it up. But 
you know, she made sure to call him out because, you know, he, look, he's closing his eyes. He doesn't, maybe he doesn't want to see or hear what's happening right now because he doesn't want to mentally deal with it. Yeah. And it's also something to point out that, uh, during the hearings, you know, they would cut to, to D'Angelo as he's sitting there and he's wearing his face covering or whatever, you know, because of COVID and all that man, that guy just sits there and he just stares off into the void. It's almost like these people are talking. He's not even listening. He's just, he's either doing that or he's really reliving it. It was, I got the impression and I mean, maybe it's just me just projecting on him, but it seemed like he was almost like enjoying listening to these people give their stories of torment, which kind of creeped me out. He listens intently, stares at him. Like you said, he he hardly even moves and to me, just looking at him sitting there, he is a creepy looking dude. He's very gaunt. What is he, 74, 75 now? He just, yeah, I believe he's 74 years old. He he fits the definition of a scary old man to a T, sitting there with his mask on and his jail suit. Yeah, I mean, he kind of reminds me of Hannibal Lecter, you know, with that mask. Just because he's just sitting there with this mask over his face and just like staring at people. I mean, it's, it, it, it's creepy, uh, for sure, especially when you know what that man was capable of. All right, so the next one I wanted to play for you guys, it was uh, the daughter of one of the rape victims. Uh, Her name is Patricia Cosper. Her mother is also named Patricia Cosper Murphy. So if you hear the audio and she mentions that, you know, don't be confused. She's, She's really speaking on behalf of her mother. And I felt like a lot of people that spoke during this and who get a lot of the attention are people that we've heard of throughout the case who have been very vocal the entire time. So I was trying to pick some some of the folks who've been, you know, victimized that you may not really hear from all that often. And if they had something, you know, like a little bit, you know, more fascinating to say or, you know, not necessarily fascinating, but maybe shed some light on something that like some of the other cases we've heard or you can find easily. So I picked hers. I thought it was a very interesting uh, statement, and it's very passionate. Have a listen. Count 14, the uh, defendant pled guilty to the charge of kidnapping with intent to commit robbery of Jane Doe Number 1, having occurred on September 4th, 1976, in the county of Sacramento, violation of Penal Code Section 209. In addition, the defendant admitted to the uncharged act as follows. Rape of Jane Doe number one having occurred on September 4th, 1976 in the County of Sacramento, a violation of Penal Code Section 261. Robbery of Jane Doe number one having occurred on September 4th, 1976 in the County of Sacramento, a violation of Penal Code Section 211. Is there any victim or victim's uh, family wish to speak as to count 14 or any of the uncharged acts? Yes, I would like to speak for my mother, Patricia Murphy. All right, when you are prepared, uh, you may proceed. Pretty difficult to prepare for this, but very happy. It's been a long time coming. I'd like to apologize to the survivor that was before me if you could overhear me. I didn't mean that. Today is totally completely appropriate because today is Tuesday and it's the law of karma. So this is my impact statement for my mom, Patricia Murphy. And I don't know what kind of emotions will come out, so we'll find out. Your Honor been four decades plus four years since Joseph D'Angelo attacked me at my parents' house. It happened during the Labor Day weekend, September 4th, 1976. 
I was loading a basket full of clean laundry into my car. He came up behind me out of nowhere on that Saturday night. That night forever changed me. I was 29 years old, about the same age as D'Angelo. I was separated from my husband, learning to live on my own after a long marriage. My daughter was seven years old and my sons 10 and 14. I had a good job with the state and was enjoying my newfound freedom and independence, but my world was different after the attack. I never felt safe for many years. It was hard for me to trust people. I was always looking over my shoulder, expecting someone to jump out at me. I wonder why he picked me to be one of his rape victims. I'll never know if he came upon me by accident or if he carefully planned out his attack beforehand. Who was he? Did he know my name? Did he know I would be at my parents' house that night? Will he follow me from now on? He punched me in the face and broke my nose. I had a concussion from falling backwards and hitting my head on the driveway. I saw stars. I lost consciousness. He shook me until it soon became clear that he and his knife had complete control over me for the next two hours. The trauma of which I am being traded for at this time, I could not escape. I did what I had to do to stay alive. He stole my car and my purse, which meant he knew my own address on my license and registration. Because of that, I moved out of my apartment so he couldn't find me and my children. I was somehow able to get on with my work and being a single mom. I went back to, with, to work with the remains of a black eye and a slightly swollen nose. The lump on my nose never went away. I learned to accept that is just part of my face. My coworkers would ask me how I got the black eye and I would just say, I was mugged. That's what we told our children too. What really happened became a dark secret that I kept buried except for telling a few close friends. Just wasn't something I wanted to think about, much less talk about. I longed for things to go back to how they were. I pretended life was fine. But it wasn't. It was exhausting. It was hard to find joy. My mind was never at peace. I turned to alcohol and drugs to help blot it all out and numb my pain. How I felt about men changed after that night. I no longer cared if I were seen as attractive. I didn't trust anymore. I am blessed to have married my husband 32 years, 32 years ago. He is on my healing journey with me. So is my family, except for my parents who have since passed away. My mom didn't want to move, so I continued to visit them there. I celebrated Christmas and other holidays at their house as if nothing ever happened. 
Sometimes there was no place to sit except on the organ bench he tied me to before he drank my dad's beer and left. I was always afraid that my dad would kill someone he thought would be my, could be my attacker. He was out looking for him with other people in the east area of Sacramento. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD soon after D'Angelo's arrest in April 2018. His arrest was a total shock. It stirred up all the painful memories of the past I had learned to block out. I was with my daughter when the news scrolled on my phone. She already knew what happened to me back in 1976. But it was a complete surprise to my sons. The news and its aftermath prompted me to have a mental breakdown and I was hospitalized 5150 for three days in June of that year. I was emotionally exhausted, unstable, and not able to deal with reality. I had trouble sleeping after I found out they caught him. I had vivid nightmares. I was prescribed different medications to deal with my anxiety and depression. I'm now getting therapy from a woman who specialized in treating this type of trauma. <sighs> Some people are wired wrong, and D'Angelo is one of them. Luck finally ran out for this messed up human being. At least a poor excuse for one. It is my hope that you punish him to the full extent of the law for the horrific crimes he committed. He admitted that he caused all the suffering and misery to so many victims over the past 40 plus years he truly is an evil monster with no soul. Did his little penis drive him to be so angry all the time? Did he study criminology so he could carry out his evil deeds as a bad cop without getting caught? Did his wife and daughter suspect anything? In closing, I want D'Angelo to end up in a place he deserves. I don't want him to like his surroundings one bit. I don't buy his act that he's on his last legs. The last years of his pitiful life ought to be spent in the worst prison in existence today. I have a favor to ask though. When you hand down his sentence, please do not address him as sir anymore. Thank you, ma'am. That's my mom's. <laughs> Does anybody else wish to be heard as to this uh, count 14? Yes, I have one for myself as Very well. Good. Thank you, ma'am. And um, 
I'm going to be respectful to the court. I'm going to admit that I cuss like a sailor or a trucker. I'm going to use initials. You'll know what I'm talking about. If they come out, I do apologize. I have respect for the court. I have respect for you, Honorable Judge Bowman, all of the lawyers here, all of the district attorneys, and the defense them. attorneys as well. That, this is your this is your moment. Yes, and also for the, the defense attorneys as well. Someone has to do this job, and you're willing to do this job. Um, I really, really especially want to thank Maylin and Anne, the victim advocates. They completely advocate for us. And these are my words. These were the words of my mom. If I talk about my mom, they're my words. And I want to thank old friends who've resurfaced to, to be here to support me. And I'd like to thank new friends that I've met along the way who are also supporting me. It is an honor to be here today. This day has been a very long time coming. Joe raped my mom when I was seven. It broke up our family. My brother lived with us and then he didn't. My mom was protecting us and couldn't tell us why. We were too young to understand. All I knew is that everything changed overnight. It affected both of my brothers, father, and my whole entire family. It affected all of us. I became my mom's mom. She went from being strong and independent and free to having PTSD. Any loud noise scared her a backfire from a motorcycle, a firework, a cabinet shutting. Any loud noise was too much to take. Nobody could ever sneak up on my mom. It was just something you knew to never ever do. Joe tried to take my mom away from me. Maybe it was Jerry. Either way, it didn't work. We are close, we are best friends, and mother-daughter, daughter-mother, we share the same name. When Joe violated her, she was Patricia Cosper. I am Patricia Cosper. I am not Jane Doe. Nor is my beautiful, sweet, strong mom, Patricia Cosper. Joe stole her car. We loved that car. It was super fast and it broke down all the time, but we loved it. He took that too. Joe took trinkets or photos. He drank beer from the fridge and ate snacks from my grandparents' pantry. That was not his intention. He intended harm and suffering. He was ruthless and cunning and patient and powerful and now he is just locked up, locked up for life. I would like to read the words of Jesus through Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. He knew better. He was treated extremely poorly as a child, abused and tormented. 
that is no excuse. Rot in jail and then rot in prison. Turns out Joe, Jerry, Joe won't be gone in the dark after all. Turns out I don't have to hunt Joseph D'Angelo, Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, Visalia Ransacker. I don't have to hunt him down after all. Michelle McNamara did that for me. Michelle McNamara, crime writer, didn't give up and law enforcement did not give up. She was his final victim. Sorry, <laughs> I'm almost done. All right, you take your time. I see her as a survivor because she got him caught, her spirit survived. She got him caught, she did not give up and now you rot. And you're not feeble. He's not feeble. And he's also a pedophile. Anybody who rapes, anybody who's not of age is a pedophile and a rapist and a murderer. Um, I'm only here because of the imprisonment, the false imprisonment, the rape of the rape of the statutes of limitations is over. So due to the fact that he tied up my mom and took her from room to room to room in my grandparents' home. The very first place I ever visited out of the hospital, the only place there was actually some happy memories of some happy family stuff going on. So I would just ask also to get him the f away from me <laughs> because, um, since I've been seven, he's been around. And then working in Roseville, living in Citrus Heights, I think he should go to the worst prison. I also think he should get the, away from Sacramento. I'm glad that we're here today. It is the capital. He violated the whole state. But if there's any county where he didn't do his damage, Either way, it doesn't matter. He's never getting out. And um, this is my beautiful mom and my grandma and myself. And um, my grandfather was out looking for you to kill you. And let me just tell you, if my grandma got her hands on you, she would have killed you with her own bare hands. But you just keep doing your jumping jacks and your push-ups and your sit-ups and your shit and your stuff. So um, I'm going to sing a little song. It's really short. It's what my grandpa, we used to sing um, when we would say goodbye to somebody. <laughs> and it goes like this. Bye-bye, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Joe. Don't cry. And Joseph D'Angelo and his mother can go straight to hell. This is for him. I know he can't look at me and he was blocked during this, whatever his plea thing was. 
but I mean this. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't been able to forgive yet. I think after all this, after Friday, I'll be able to forgive. But in the meanwhile, this is what I have for him. Not you, defenders. Him in the orange. The subhuman. Thank you very much. Thank you, ma'am. So there you have Patricia Cosper speaking on behalf of her mother as well as herself. That was some pretty powerful stuff. There's a lot in what she had to say. And I felt that that family is always underrepresented in what's going on here. You know, again, there's a lot of outspoken folks who have had stuff happen to them and, and they speak out a lot and you hear their stories. But I thought hers was very fascinating. And I recall when I first learned of this case and read about, you know, the attack on her, that one particularly moved me. You know, that woman was just doing her laundry. She was outside throwing some laundry into her car and bam, just gets blindsided by this lunatic. He just beat her up outside to get her in the house, which I felt was, it was just so brutal from the start. A lot of times victims were in their homes, they were sleeping and he would creep in on them. But in this case, she was outside and just gets blindsided by this creep. What'd you make of that statement? Through Patricia's daughter and the statement that she was reading on behalf of her mother, very apparent that it was a very brutal attack. She she even said that she's lived with that scar and the bump on her nose her entire life. That's like her constant reminder every time she looks in the mirror that this is what she went through and this is what she has to deal with for the last 44 years. I, I can't imagine. There's, just, there's so much trauma in that statement that she read on behalf of her mother and what she did to try to hide and conceal this, you know, this brutal attack you know, for most of her life and protect her family from what she had went through. I, d I just can't imagine. I had jotted down a handful of things that she mentioned. So from Patricia Murphy's written statement that was read, you know, she mentioned that he stole her license and always had her address, that she had to move, that she felt silenced and she couldn't speak about this. And that was one theme that you'd find throughout this victim impact statement, not just hers, but through others, was that during this time, they never really felt like they could speak out about rape and, and, and talk about what had happened to them and, you know, do it publicly. It, they kind of were forced to move on, you know, and they didn't. A lot of them suffered from PTSD, which Patricia did. And then after the arrest, it sparked more feelings. She mentioned she was 5150, which, uh, if you don't know what that means, that's involuntary psychiatric hold. So that's when you can be held against your will for 72 hours in a psych ward. And that, that was really, really moving to hear that, you know, 40 plus years later, she was still so triggered by this. And I don't blame her not one bit, you know, I would be too. And, uh, you know, her daughter said, you couldn't sneak up on her mom. If you snuck up on her, it would freak her out, you know, and she would lose it. Rightly so. The one thing that really stuck out to me in, in the statement from her mother was the fact that through all of this, through the attack, through all of the trauma, through everything that she tried to hide and protect her family from, her parents did not want to move from their home. She had to visit there and sometimes even sit on the exact same piano or organ bench that he tied her to and attacked her on. Can you even imagine what would go through your mind? You know, and, and that's the thing, like, being a parent in that situation, I'd move. You know, if it, I don't know what kind of conversations they had family wise about it after the fact, if it was one of those things, some families are like, no, you just, you just deal with this and you shut up and move on. We don't talk about it. 
Then there's other families that are very vocal about things and they talk about them. Uh, you know, the way that my family is, if that would have happened to one of my children, I would have moved. Uh, I would have moved for my sake, even, you know, I just would be done. There's like an energy about a place, you know, and after something so traumatic like that happens, I can't imagine like sticking around. No, I can't either. And even if it was positive energy before the attack, there is no place in this world that I would want to be where one of my children were attacked. I would want to stay there and know what had happened to them there because in the back of your mind, it, it you just know that it's it's so taxing on them to have to relive those thoughts every time they come to visit you. I don't, I don't know what the rationale about staying there was, but it just, I'm with you. I would, I would be long gone from that place if something like that happened. The other couple things that she mentioned that I wanted to get through before we move on to the next one is, uh, you know, a theme that again, throughout other victim impact statements, they are not a Jane Doe. They're not a John Doe. They are the victim and here's their name. You know, they want to be heard. They want to be known. They don't want to be just some anonymous person in most cases. She also mentions Jerry. So for those of you who are uninformed on that, supposedly Jerry is D'Angelo's alter ego that makes him do these things. Uh, There's rumors that he mentioned when he was arrested. I don't remember if it was like while he was in holding by himself and they caught it on camera or if it was to any of the police officers or if it was even true. But there was a mention that he, quote unquote, pushed him out years ago, meaning he mentions Jerry. Jerry is like an alter ego. I don't know how much I buy that. It sounds like an act from him. I mean, I, truly, there's something going on in his mind to make him do these things. And he probably does battle those urges or did battle those urges because if he truly stopped his crimes from 1986 up till 2018 when he was captured, uh, that, that likely did happen. It was probably a battle going on in his mind. But at the same time, it sounds to me, just seeing what this guy does and how he is, that's just a, a show. Like, the whole persona of Jerry and all that stuff is just made up for sympathy in my mind. I mean, who knows? But uh, she mentions that. Um, she also mentions Michelle McNamara being the final victim, that she was the one who started bringing, you know, national attention back to this case after it hadn't been solved for so long. And she was writing about it. And she eventually, I believe she suffered a heart attack uh, while finishing I'll Be Gone in the Dark. You know, a lot of people have mixed emotions about Michelle. But I think you can give her credit for shedding light on this case again. And I think she deserves that at minimum. Whether or not you believe a lot of the things she writes in her books and stuff, you can't deny that she's helped bring attention back to this case. And lastly, she mentions that he's a pedophile. And I do think that's something that gets lost in this. Is He definitely is a pedophile. He rapes many underage women. So, uh, well, they're not even women yet. They're technically girls. So let's call them what they were at the time. They were girls, little girls. Um, some as young as 13, a lot of them were 15 years old, their innocence taken away. It, it, she was hundred percent right. And then at the very end, I know it's audio. You couldn't see it. She was singing that song she made up for him and, uh, flipping him the bird <laughs> the entire time. I thought that was very moving and, you know, spoke volumes to how that family hasn't moved past this event that happened 40 some years ago. So is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, just one last thing I want to add to this before we move on to our next statement. I'm glad that she called him out as a pedophile. And I think her reasoning for doing that was she she was very clear that she wanted him to suffer in, you know, the worst possible prison environment that they could put him into. And I've never been to prison, but you know, from from things I've heard and people I know that have experienced it, 
the number one worst thing you can do and be in prison is to take advantage of children, whether it's whether it's the killing of a child or the rape and molestation of a child. Those people are held in the lowest regard possible. So I'm glad she did that and, and keeps bringing that to light. You know, 40-some years removed from the crimes, you, you may forget the fact that these victims were, like you said, 13, 14, 15 years old. But those those other guys that are in prison, you know, and have children and think about a guy like this doing something to that to their children, That's it's it, it puts him in a very precarious position when he's in prison. And I'm glad she did it because... They may seek out some prison justice while he's there if they can get to him. Absolutely. All right. The next victim was uh, Victor Hayes. Now, his girlfriend at the time was uh, brutally attacked and raped, and he was there. He was one of the, I think he was one of the first who was attacked as a couple. And Victor had a lot of interesting things to say. So let's break that down for you now. I want to start this off by saying, uh, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to be here. And uh, this is going to be all from uh, my memory. And um, I want to say that I have the utmost respect for the court. And I also want to say that I have the utmost respect for law enforcement uh, doing their job. Uh, You know, I know that they... um, provide a lot of the freedoms that I have in society when they're honest and they do good work. When they're honest and they do good work. I appreciate that. Um, This is going to be different because this case is different than the other cases. And I have a different point of view and perspective because I'm a male. And I am right smack dab ground zero in the middle of the East Area Rapist. I'm 21 years old at the time. I've been living in the neighborhood for nine or ten years, and apparently I walked a lot of the same ground as Mr. D'Angelo. And I want to say that Mr. D'Angelo, this is about me and him. He stalked me. This wasn't about my girlfriend. And by the way, I haven't announced myself. My name is Victor George Hayes, Joe. And my girlfriend's name is Rhonda Ortiz. Victor George Hayes. Rhonda Ortiz. Not Jane Doe, John Doe. So... I've come to know after this man got caught, I've realized that my paths crossed with him a couple of times, probably more. Only he knows that right now. So I'm going to start off by letting you know how I know this man stalked me. So in 1974, when I was 18 years old, I was working for the summer in Bucks Lake, California, Plumas County. And I did that every summer from the time I was 14 till I believe I was 22 years old. And the man that I worked for also caretaked the PG&E campground there. And he had a dude string. 
I started off as one of the young boys and eventually wound up being the, you know, head wrangler, the oldest boy and young man there. So there was an incident, and I believe it was in 1974, when I was 18 years old, where we had an event, a thing that we provided. Instead of going the hourly horse rides, we did this thing that we called the moonlight ride to where we went out, rode out 45 minutes to a camp spot, barbecued hot dogs, drank soda, ate chips, and came back right at dusk. So one day we're getting ready to go do this. Might have been the month of August. And my counterpart came over to me and he said, see that guy over there? He's a sheriff. And I thought, okay, kind of looked at him. He had some clothes on, like a sheriff uniform, but no insignias. I thought that was kind of odd. And I'm thinking to myself, well, we got reserve deputy sheriffs in Plumas County, or we got sheriffs in Plumas County. Maybe this is what he is. So I'm in the back. I'm not the lead. I'm in the back. He's in the back. Fifteen minutes into the ride, we're conversing and we're talking, and I remember asking him his name, and I remember that it was a common name. And I asked him, well, where are you a sheriff at? And he said some name of some little town, some place, and I didn't recognize it. Kind of had a weird name, kind of. Exeter? And he said it was, I believe he said it was by Visalia. And I thought it odd. What's he doing in Plumas County with his, with kind of a mimicking a police officer? What, what's that all about? So we get to this spot where there's a creek that goes across the road and the horses stop the water. He did something to the horse, pulled up and spurred it. At the same time, the horse threw his ass in a creek. Six, seven, eight years of me doing this, I saw people fall off. I never saw anybody get bucked off. He was the only one. How about this? The name of the horse, this is the first of many things like this between me and him in this incident. The name of the horse was Snake. So now here's the second time. So probably about six months before he came into my house, before I'd actually rented the place that he visited, I was at a liquor store next to the Lucky Store on La Riviera Drive in Glenbrook, new part of Glenbrook. And I was in my transportation car. I have a 67 Chevelle, a black 67 Chevelle. Remember that? Very vocal in the name. Very people, everybody sees it in the neighborhood. They know me. They know me driving around. But I'm in my transportation car. This makes me feel old when I say this. It's a 1953 Chevrolet four-door. Had a visor on it. Six-cylinder in it. It was my transportation car. So I'm in front of the liquor store, and I got the family dog with me. And I'm out in front. I'd already been in, and I'm out in front. I wasn't buying liquor. I don't smoke. I don't know what I was there for. I might have been there to buy a magazine. 
up comes this guy. And he walks by the dog. And he acts like he's going to kick the dog. Good dog, smart dog, good judge of character, not a mean dog, not a biting dog per se. But I told the dog, that guy kicks you biting. You didn't like that. You got nasty. We had words. I thought we were going to throw blows. He went in the store. I didn't run off. I stayed. He came out. I went to the car to like their back seat or whatever. I had a bat back there to make it handy. He's bigger than me, older than me. He wouldn't let it go. He was pissed off. I apologized to him. I backed down. I told him I'm sorry. He started walking to his car. Some kind of a Dodge vehicle, two-door hardtop, uh, dark in color, kind of a semi Quasi, maybe hot rod or whatever, but I would like consider it maybe a geek hot rod. So I wrote the license plate down on a piece of paper and put it in the ashtray. And I remember thinking, is this the guy that's going around in the neighborhood breaking in and raping people? I remember thinking that because it's been going on for about a year. So. Now I know this, but I didn't know it at the time. And I had to think about this after he got caught. So I feel that when he came into my house, I know that he was watching and he knew that my girlfriend was there, but she didn't live there. So I feel that it was kind of like, he was there uh, at the, she was at, there at, kind of at the wrong time. So he did all of the normal things, normal, all the things that you hear him say that he did at all these other break-ins, he, he did. And one thing, there wasn't much talking going, there wasn't any talking going on between me and him because I kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to instigate him or aggravate him. But he did say one thing to me. He came into my, he was only at my house for about 30 minutes because he got ran off, he got interrupted because a couple of friends of mine knocked on the door and scared him off. So he wasn't done. I don't know what he was going to do. He let my dog off its chain and it was in the house. I later learned that he don't like dogs and he bludges them to death. So he's probably going to kill my dog. What else he was going to do? I'm not quite sure. I never really feared for my life because he doesn't scare me or intimidate me in that way. I want to tell you about one thing that he did. He told me that he was going to party with Sharon. Put the gun to my face, pulled the hammer back and said, I'm going to party with Sharon. That would be my mom. Right then and there, I knew that this guy had investigated me, stalked me, knew about me, put effort into, you know, put effort into it. So now I want to tell you what happened later.
I got this list here that I've kept for a long time from the Sacramento Bee that chronologically talks about, you know, his rapes. He's in my house on October 1st, 1977. So then he commits a rape on October 21st, of which you guys just talked about, I believe. Maybe October 29th he commits a rape, not maybe he does. Now on November 10th he commits a rape on La Riviera Drive. Let me tell you about that. So that's what, uh, 40 days after he's at my house and he threatens to rape my mom. My parents live in a house off of La Riviera Drive, 149 Water Glen Circle. Backyard backs right up, single-story home, backyard backs right up to the levee, go through the gate, go down to the American River Parkway, go over the top of the levee. If you go west, about 2,000 yards down that levee, you're where this rape occurred at Margaret Wardlow's house. She's 13 years old. Now, I ask you, he did that crime to her. Do you think he really went out looking to violate a 13-year-old that night? I think he's snooping around my parents' house. I think he had the full intent of coming in to my parents' house. So... Changing the subject here a little bit. I want to talk about what the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office did to me, and how they treated me. So I want to tell you that when they responded to my house, this was completely on the down low. No sirens. Everybody came in an individual vehicle. Three female detectives and one male detective. That's it. That's all the can. The male detective showing up first. Then the female detective, who I've heard her name mentioned already, who consoled my girlfriend at the time. And then two forensic female detectives, one white, one black, showed up at my house. The detective's taking me outside to the car to talk to me. He just wants to know, do I know who this person is? He wants a physical description. He wants a description of the weapon. And when I tell him I don't know right off the bat who this individual is, that's pretty much, oh, he asked me one other question. He did ask me one other question. Have you had any kind of involvement with a police officer lately? He did ask me that. But it just kind of went like this because my head's kind of spinning and all this is going on. So two times to the car, second time in the car, out of the car, back in the house. The two female detectives are in my kitchen doing their fingerprinting. Now, you could ask me, out of all this event right here, what would be the one event that left the biggest impression on you or traumatized you the most. And I'm going to tell you what it was. Those two female detectives were laughing in my kitchen at 2.45 or 3 o'clock a.m., laughing. 
That hurts bad. I've carried that around my whole life. Every time I think about this, I think about that. Not what he did. Not, not the, and he did nasty, heinous things. He violated my 17 and a half year old girlfriend. She's a nice girl. You've traumatized her, Joe, so bad. She's disappeared. I don't know where she is. She can't face this. You've profoundly affected her life. You defiled and violated her. She's soft, smells good, sweet, honest, caring, loving person. Terrible, man. You should be ashamed of yourself. So now there's more. So now I get asked to go to the sheriff's station on Monday, both of us, to give samples, forensic samples, hair samples for the rape kit, I imagine. So we go down there. I go upstairs. There's a sergeant behind a desk. Yeah, I'm expecting you. He's fiddle-faddling around. I say, Sarge. I don't know if he's a sergeant or not, but I say, Sarge. You say, look, I'm not real happy with your detectives that were at my house Saturday morning. They were laughing. You think this unprofessionalism may have something to do with the fact that you can't catch this guy. He got red in the face. He stood up, put his finger in my chest. He said, listen, you SOB, you'll knock that shh off or I'll put you in jail. Right in front of my girlfriend, who 48 hours previously, earlier, got raped by this creep. I'm going, what did I do? Why am I the villain here? What, what the heck is going on here? So we went to the bathroom, came back. I said, Sarge, how do I get a copy of the police report? And he told me, you'll wait. Those things take 14 to 20 days. When the time comes, you can pay your $17 like everybody else and get a copy. That was it. 43 years, or 41 years, no one ever wanted to talk to me. Nobody talked to me about that. Three weeks later, I went down to the to the police station to get a copy of the police report. They wouldn't give it to me. Never got a copy of the police report till a year ago. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So... I want to tell you, I want to tell you what makes this guy the worst of the worst. We, we already, we've, we're already hearing this testimony. You know, we, we already know all these heinous things that he's done. It's despicable. It's immature. It's disgusting. But I'll tell you what makes him the worst of the worst. He's a public servant. And he's a police officer. He put his hand on a book and swore to uphold the law and swore to be an officer and a gentleman. Each and every sheriff, 
and police officer nationwide ought to be enraged by this guy for, what's the word, defecating on the honor. It's disgusting. It's cowardly to have to sneak around in the middle of the night like I heard one of these other ladies say a few minutes ago, you use the tools afforded by me, the public, to help you do your job, and you turned them on me. You can't be a man and do it like a man. You know all those Western magazines that you read, Frontier Times and True West? I know you read them. I know you know about all those outlaws. I do, too. You can't pull their jockstrap. You're violating women. You're not robbing banks. You're not being a man. Weak, Joe. So there you have Victor Hayes' statement. And while it's a little rambly and off the cuff at times, and we've edited some of it down, I think it's just interesting to hear his perspective as the first male victim of the Golden State Killer. I thought it was interesting that he thinks he's had several run-ins with him at various points in time. I don't know that those are true. You know, I don't know that it actually happened that way, the way that he's describing. But it is interesting if he did really run into him, that story about the horse bucking bucking him off and into the creek. <laughs> I really want to know if that happened. I thought that was really interesting. And the horse's name was Snake. What were your thoughts? Well, I think that part of the statement, it, it sounded a little bit glorified, but I mean, it it could have very well happened. And what I found interesting was the incident at the convenience store where he said Joe threatened his dog and he didn't remember why he was there. might've been there to buy a magazine, but it's been a while since we've done the actual case and all of the episodes, but there was some, there was some information that we shared about him, you know, possibly being ID'd at that convenience store from some of our previous episodes. So I thought that was really cool tie in. I I think there was some credibility there to that statement. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to say it's so many years now since that all happened. And uh, you know, is some of this like a revisionist history on, on Vic's part. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to say he's lying or anything like that. I don't necessarily think he is. I just, it's hard to validate what he's saying. You know, it, it could just be things that, I was reading some message boards and stuff like that and reading what people were saying about his statement. And a lot of people felt like he was maybe making some of this up and such. I don't necessarily know that that's true because he wasn't coming out with the stuff at the time. You know, he mentioned like he saw his car and he wrote down his license plate number and this and that. What's interesting there, though, is like if he did do that, why didn't he report it or did he report it? Nothing happened. I, I feel like I missed some of that. Did, did he mention anything in there about what happened after writing down that license plate? Because I don't necessarily recall him saying that he went forward with that information to anyone and making a stink of it. No, I don't think he did. And I mean, in that particular statement, I don't think he comes back and say that he reported the license plate or, you know, the vehicle that was at the store. I, I think one one picture that he's trying to paint throughout his statement too is he he's being respectful to the court and being respectful to law enforcement but he also has a massive chip on his shoulder because he didn't feel that he was getting enough attention 
when he was making a statement and, you know, the detectives are at his house and they're laughing in his kitchen. And that's, you know, one of the worst memories of the entire attack that he has is their laughter. Like they weren't taking things seriously after his girlfriend had been attacked. You hear some of that stuff where, what do they call it, gallows humor? You know, for folks who are in a very stressful line of work where they just see nothing but trauma all the time. But then again, you know, there's also a thing called professionalism. And you don't go to a crime scene where the victims are and continue to make jokes where they can see you and hear you. That's just, that is unprofessional. No matter what excuse you want to make for those people trying to get by with their day, you just don't. That's just unprofessional. You don't do that in front of people. So, yeah, I felt uh, that it was it was definitely uh, an interesting set of scenarios that he brought forth, and I thought it was worth listening to and hearing what he had to say. And, you know, a lot of these dots he's connecting, I imagining post arrest where he's coming back with some of this stuff and kind of putting it all together now. And maybe that's why he doesn't bring forward that he never probably gave the police his license plate and stuff like that. Uh, but who knows, you know, it could have easily, he could easily have been making it up. I, I don't know. I don't know that, that he did that, you know, you would think if you took the time to write it down, you felt strongly about this guy being the East Area Rapist at the time because things were going on that you would have reported it if you if you thought strongly enough to write it down. But I don't know. Yeah, and I don't think he, he, he mentioned that. The the overall audio or his statement was 40 minutes. And you know, like, like you said, we edited some of it down. But I listened to the whole thing as I was trying to figure out what a good cut point was. And I don't recall mm-hmm. him saying that. I mean, the remaining 20 minutes, he... He'd, like I said, he has a chip on his shoulder. He he goes after, you know, some of the law enforcement and why they didn't pay attention to him and kind of blew him off. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and some of the, that, that chip that he does have on his shoulder played into part of his statement. Like you said, I think some of it, you know, post-arrest and post-history, kind of some of the stuff could have been made up. I don't know. I don't want to say that for sure, though, but it, it very well could have been. Yep, Absolutely. Join us next time as we wrap up part two of the Golden State Killer victim impact statements. And we will also be covering the sentencing portion of the trial. And we will hear from the killer himself, Joseph James D'Angelo, as he apologizes to the victims. Stay safe.